Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, next Sunday, the, the 10th, is Palm Sunday. And typically, I would go to one of the gospel accounts dealing with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which inaugurates that final week of his earthly life, culminating in his crucifixion and burial on Friday and his resurrection on Sunday. But next week, we were supposed to have uh, one of the speakers from the Alpha and Omega Conference. And so this morning, we were going to look at an event that occurred that final week just prior to Jesus' arrest. And so that's what I prepared for, I was looking forward to, and then I received a phone call Friday afternoon that Dr. Feinberg is unable to travel. He won't even be at the conference, so he's not going to be able to be here next Sunday. So it's like, okay, what do we do now? Well, after praying about what to do, I decided to go ahead with what I felt the Lord leading me to do this morning, and that is looking at our Lord's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then next Sunday, uh, we'll look at our Lord's arrest, and of course on Good Friday, his death and burial, and then the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And I think it's important that we take more time than just Good Friday and Easter Sunday to remember these things. Uh, In the past, we did Sunday, Wednesday, Friday, and and then Sunday to help us, I mean, remember this, to think about this. I mean, this, this is the heart of Christianity. I mean, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is, that's the heart of it. You take that away, we have nothing. And so I think it's important that we spend time and, and uh, think about these things. And so this morning we're going to be looking at our Lord's agony in Gethsemane. And it's an account we, we all know very well. But it's an account in which we will never come to know the depths of agony and pain that Jesus endured that night alone because of his great love for sinners like us. I mean, these verses really are sacred and, and holy ground. Spurgeon said of this passage, Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. May the Holy Spirit graciously reveal to us all that we can be permitted to see of the king beneath the olive trees in the garden of Gethsemane. And that's exactly right. And and may the Lord give us just a little glimmer of understanding as we look at this passage together this morning. Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And our text for this morning is verses 32 through 42. So Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. If you stand, if you will stand as I read our text. 
Mark chapter 14, beginning now in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, it's very late at night on Thursday, perhaps even a little after midnight, making it early Friday morning of Passover week. Judas had left earlier to plot our Lord's arrest, which will come a little later. The Last Supper had ended. Now Jesus, along with the 11 disciples, left the upper room where they had celebrated Passover and made their way out of Jerusalem, heading east toward the Mount of Olives. And as they were walking, Mark tells us, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So come what may, they were all sure that they were going to remain loyal to Jesus. And as Jesus and his disciples made their way out from this city, they would have descended from Mount Zion down into the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley is a ravine that starts north of Jerusalem and runs down between the city on the east and the Mount of Olives on the west and runs down to the Dead Sea in the south. And during the rainy season, water would, would flow down the ravine, but the rest of the time it was dry. Now, Passover is at the end of the rainy season, so in a normal year, there would be water flowing down the ravine at this time, and that is why John tells us Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. And I share this with you because at Passover, more than 200,000 Passover lambs were slain over a two-day period. And their blood would drain away from the altar in the temple into a channel which ran down the temple mount and into the Kidron Valley. And so when Jesus and his disciples crossed the brook Kidron, it would have been running red with the blood of sacrificial animals that could never take away sin. And no doubt, 
in the Lord's mind was his own sacrifice. It was going to be made in, in just hours. And after crossing that bloody creek, they made their way up the western slope of the Mount of Olives to a garden, and not just any garden, but a very special garden. We read now in verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. In Jesus' day, many wealthy people had private gardens outside the city on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And the name Gethsemane in Aramaic is Aramaic in origin, and it means olive press. And so apparently it was an olive orchard equipped with its own press. So it was a place where olives were grown, harvested, and then crushed for their oil. And so it's a very fitting name because it was here that our Lord Jesus would be pressed. He would be crushed, so to speak, to the point of death. And Bible scholars believe that the garden was probably owned by a wealthy friend of Jesus, a believer, you know, some unnamed servant of God who ministered to the Lord by making his garden available for, for Jesus to use as often as he wanted. And it was a place that the Lord must have enjoyed because according to Luke 22 and John 18, the garden was a place he often went with his disciples. No doubt to get away from the crowds and, and to rest and to meditate and, and to pray and to have fellowship. And so the garden was a very familiar place to all of the disciples, which is why Judas easily led the authorities right to Jesus, even though it was pitch black dark. And when they arrived at the garden, Jesus said, if you'll notice verse 32, sit here while I pray. He instructed eight of the disciples to sit at the entrance or the gate because he wanted to go and pray. And the word pray, which Jesus used here, is a word always used of praying to God. Other words may refer to begging or asking something from someone else, but this word always refers to God. It's an intense word of prayer to God. So Jesus is saying, you men sit here, and I'm going to go and pour my, my heart out to God in fervent, intense prayer. I mean, that's what he's saying. I mean, two days earlier, Jesus told the disciples that he would be delivered up to be crucified. Earlier that evening, he told them, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And then only moments earlier, he had warned them of the danger they were in of falling away and, and scattering and denying him. And so they all knew they were at a crisis point. And they too should have seen it as a time for deep concern and fervent prayer. But you know, there is no indication whatsoever that they prayed a single word. There's not even a hint that they called upon God for help and to strengthen them. And you see, few things demonstrate our complete and utter dependence upon God, as does prayer. I mean, prayer is an expression of our inability to accomplish anything by ourselves. It's a confession, a glad acknowledgement of our weakness, our frailty, our complete dependence upon the sovereignty and the provision of God. And by praying, we are acknowledging that we need His divine strengthening and enabling, that we need His power and resources. I mean, we cannot so much as lift a finger without the hand of God. And apparently the disciples felt no desperation about their weakness and vulnerability. I mean, they didn't even realize how desperate and serious the situation really was. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew, and he felt a desperate, desperate need to commune with his Father in prayer. 
And if the Lord Jesus needed to turn to his Father in prayer, how much more do you and I need to do that on a regular basis? We read in verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. So Jesus left eight disciples at the entrance of the garden and and he took along with him Peter, James, and John, the three men who made up the inner circle. He had taken these three with him on other important occasions, such as when he raised, raised Jairus' daughter. They were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where they witnessed his glory. But now they're chosen to witness the opposite extreme. Now they were to witness his deepest agony and distress. And these three were the leaders of the disciples. They were the closest, uh, Jesus' closest earthly companions. But he didn't take them along in order to have their companionship, their sympathy, or their help. I mean, he loved them deeply. And he enjoyed their companionship, but he knew them far too well to expect them to be of any help to him in this critical hour. Now, he took them along for their benefit, not his. And his purpose was to teach them that as important and helpful as the fellowship and support of other believers is, our ultimate help and and strength is found in communing with God in prayer. Jesus wanted them to see that in his humanity, even the Son of God needed the grace and strength that can only come through prayer. He wanted them to learn how important it is to pray so that they would be able to overcome temptation. He wanted them to learn that only in prayer to the Father could they find the resources they need to meet their most desperate need. And they were going to learn this all right. But unfortunately, they were going to learn it by failing to pray and falling into temptation. As one man said, they were going to learn the way that we learn the best, by failure. They were going to learn out of the disaster of their prayerlessness. And so Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went deeper into the garden. But before he got to the place where he was going to pray, something happened. Something happened. And the verse tells us Jesus began to be greatly distressed. And that word actually means to be stunned with astonishment. It describes the pain that results from some great shock. It's being excessively affected by emotion. And so this is really something. Because if you read the life of Jesus in the Gospels, nothing ever seemed to surprise him. I mean, he was unflappable. But it says here he began to be greatly distressed, you know, astonished. And so something happened. He saw something. He he felt, he sensed, he realized something. He experienced great distress and it and it shocked him. The eternal son of God and his humanity was stunned by it. What was it? We'll get to that in a moment. Secondly, not only was he greatly distressed, if you look back at the verse, he was also greatly troubled. And this word troubled means to be overcome with horror, to be or become subject to extreme mental or spiritual anguish or distress, sometimes to the point of losing your composure. 
And so as he was going deeper into the garden to pray, Jesus was astonished as something came over him, a a crushing, overwhelming, devastating sense of horror, a mental and spiritual anguish and agony that made him feel like he was dying. And the Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, so he knew sorrow and grief like no other man who ever has ever lived. But there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified, Jesus experienced sorrow to a degree that we are absolutely unable to comprehend. In fact, the sorrow and and grief he felt was so intense that after he had taken them aside, he said to Peter, James, and John in verse 34, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. My soul is very or exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And the word translated very sorrowful means to be completely surrounded with sorrow. It means to be squeezed in from every side with sorrow. It's just sorrow crushing in from all directions. And Jesus was experiencing a sorrow which threatened life itself. As one man said, far from sailing serenely through his trials like some superior being who is unconcerned with this world, Jesus is almost dead with sorrow and distress. Jesus had always known that he had come to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And So what was different about the sorrow and grief he experienced in the garden? Well, we know that it was not the fear of dying and the excruciating pain involved in scourging and the cruel death of the cross. I mean, we know that because there have been thousands of Christians down through the ages who have been arrested, beaten, tortured, scourged, and crucified without even a groan because of their faith. Jesus was not sorrowful to the point of death because of a fear of suffering and dying on the cross. He faced the cross with, with courage and peace. He, he came to give his life, and he did so willingly. But here in the garden, Jesus was facing something far beyond physical death and torment, something so much worse that physical death and torment were like flea bites by comparison. Well, what was it then that caused the Son of God to be deeply grieved, distressed, horrified, and sorrowful, even to the point of death? There's only one reasonable answer. And it was the thought of having to become sin. You see, we cannot conceive what it meant to Jesus, the holy, sinless Son of God, to be made sin for us. And we can't conceive what it, what it meant because sin comes so natural to us. And that's how sinful we are. I mean, it is utterly natural to us. We're utterly thoughtless sinners so much of the time. And because sin is natural to us, try as we might, we can't begin to fear it or hate it as Jesus did. We never see our sin as God sees it. We're never, we're never revolted by it as God is. It never makes us as angry as it does Him. The thought of bearing it doesn't even cause us to recoil. 
And the thought of God's judgment of it, while it strikes fear into our hearts from time to time, is bearable to us so that we don't think of it and don't fear it almost all of the time. Because we are sinful beings, we cannot enter into what Jesus was thinking and feeling that night in Gethsemane. We cannot begin to comprehend the agony he experienced as he considered the burden of the world's sin all being placed upon him and thus becoming sin for us. I mean, the thought of becoming sin was a crushing burden. It was a weight so heavy, so great, that it can only be known to God. Because you see, God is totally repulsed by sin. Speaking of God, the prophet Habakkuk said, You are of purer eyes and to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. I mean, Jesus was holy and sinless, and as God, he could, he could perceive the horror of sin in a way that we cannot. And as Jesus looked at the world's sin, he saw all the brutality of a thousand holocausts. He saw all the wickedness, the vileness, the perversions, the, the blasphemy, jealousy, envy, hatred, murder and covetousness, and his holy soul shuddered. We cannot even begin to understand the magnitude of Jesus' crushing anguish and suffering and grief. I mean, everything in his holy being was absolutely repulsed by the thought of sin. But this is the only possible response of the perfectly holy Son of God to the thought of bearing sin and guilt and judgment. Jesus, the holy, sinless Son of God, was going to take man's sin upon himself, but that's not all. In doing so, he would also experience another horror that he had never known. He would be forsaken by his Father. When Jesus became sin, his father would turn his back on him because the same sin that repulsed Jesus repulsed heaven. I mean, Jesus lived in constant fellowship and communion with the Father. He got all his power and his grace and his love from his relationship with the Father. And the thought of alienation from his Father, it horrified him. But there's even more. He would not only take upon himself man's sin, he would not only experience God turning away from him, also contributing to his agony and horror, was the weight of bearing the judgment of God. He was going to experience the full fury of God's wrath against sin. And so it's no wonder that Jesus said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I mean, it's possible to die from strong emotions such as anger, fear, and and even sorrow. And Luke, who was a physician, tells us in his gospel that Jesus, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The incredible physical strain of the grief and extreme anguish that Jesus suffered caused a dangerous medical condition known as hematidrosis, in which subcutaneous capillaries dilate and burst, and then blood escapes through the pores of the skin. 
And as the capillaries burst under the pressure of deep distress and blood escaped through the pores of Jesus' skin, it mingled with this sweat falling down to the ground. And no doubt it was this experience that the writer of Hebrews referred to in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reference. The anguish and and grief over becoming sin and his consequent separation from God was enough to kill Jesus had God not divinely strengthened him so that he could die on the cross. In fact, Luke tells us that an angel from heaven appeared to him strengthening him. So Jesus' agony, which we cannot even begin to comprehend, was caused by the realization that he would take upon himself the full magnitude and defilement of man's sin, that his father would turn away from him and he would experience the full force and fury of his father's holy wrath against sin. And as we look upon Jesus agonizing in, in, in a bloody sweat at the mere thought of becoming sin, that should speak volumes to us of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We don't understand sin the way Jesus understood sin in the Garden of Gethsemane, or we would hate sin the way he hates it. So often we wink at sin, continue in sin as if it's no big deal. Jesus' agony in the garden over the thought of becoming sin should also speak to us of his great love for us. I mean, think of the love. He loved us so much that he took our sin, something that absolutely repulsed him, upon himself and willingly suffered the punishment for that sin. So loved ones, we should never doubt for one moment that God loves us because if he did, if he did not, he never would have become sin and suffered the death of the cross for you and I. The Apostle Paul said it this way, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John said it like this, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Remain and watch. The word watch means to be awake, it means to be attentive, vigilant. It speaks of being spiritually alert. I mean, more specifically, it refers to being alert against the temptation of indifference. I mean, it could also carry the idea of sharing the agony of Jesus. But sadly, rather than remaining there and watching, they remained there and slept. But we read in verse 35, and going a little farther, He fell on the ground and prayed. Luke tells us in his account, Jesus was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. 
And so Jesus went 30, 40 yards beyond where he left the three disciples to pray alone. And Luke says he knelt down and prayed. But evidently, as the intensity of the situation increased, as Mark tells us, Jesus fell on the ground. Matthew tells us the incarnate son fell on his face as in his humanity he prayed with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. And no doubt Gethsemane had witnessed Jesus praying many, many times before. But never like this. Never with this urgency. Never with this intensity. And what did the Lord Jesus pray? Look back at verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And when he prayed, if it were possible, Jesus uh, was not asking God if he had the power to let the hour pass from him, but if it were possible in God's plan. And of course, the hour refers to the time of his sacrificial death and includes everything from his betrayal to his illegal trials, the mockery and shame and his crucifixion. And then he said in verse 36, notice, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And Jesus always called God his Father. But here Mark tells us, in this time of great anguish and distress, Jesus called him Abba, Father. And Abba is an Aramaic term equivalent to something like Papa or Daddy. But it's a word that is also, it was a word also used by adults. I mean, even of disciples to their rabbi. So there is nothing particularly childish about the use of the term. It's a term of intimacy and a term of trust. But the Jews, and even more so the rabbis, didn't use such a familiar term in addressing God. I mean, they would never call God Father, let alone Abba, because they considered such intimacy disrespectful. But Jesus used the term because he, as the Son of God, was on intimate terms with the Father. And he calls on the affectionate, intimate, personal name of God as if pleading for that intimate love to rescue him. And don't you know God was listening when his only son cried out in agony, Abba, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. The words, all things are possible for you, speak of God's omnipotence. And he could accomplish anything. Jesus was affirming God's sovereign control over the coming suffering. Abba, he said, all things are are under your control. If possible, remove this cup from me. And the cup, of course, is a symbol from the Old Testament of divine wrath. It speaks of God's holy wrath against human sin, which Jesus would have to endure in order to atone for the sins of the world. And Jesus knows he must drink the cup of the wrath of God, which is something he had never experienced. And we need to understand that when Jesus said, if it is possible, remove this cup from me, he was not trying to get out of his mission. Because the cross is why he came. Jesus said in John 12, verses 27 and 28, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. When Jesus said, if it is possible, remove this cup from me, he was not wrestling with God's will or resisting God's will. He was submitting, he was yielding himself to God's will. But the thought of becoming sin was so unendurable to Jesus, who was holy, harmless, sinless, and undefiled, that he was wondering out loud before his Father, asking if there was any other way in his plan to deliver men from sin. Father, is there any other way for your justice against all human sin and evil to be satisfied? Is there any other way for men to be saved other than be... My becoming sin and being separated from you. If so, Father, remove this cup from me. But in all of this, I want it known that I desire nothing contrary to your will. But God did not take the cup. He didn't take it away. Because the cup was his will. Jesus must drink the bitter cup of God's wrath against sin. And he must drain it to the dregs. And as our sin bearer, Jesus would be the object of God's holy wrath against sin. And you see there in the garden, Jesus could probably see the tidal wave of God's wrath against our sin already coming toward him. When he was sensing and and he could see the sufferings that he would experience in just a matter of hours. And if the mere anticipation of these sufferings sent the Son of God into shock and almost death, what must it have been to actually experience them? I mean, it's one thing to know something is going to be hot. But it's another thing to actually begin to experience and feel the the massive heat as you draw close and, and you sense how unbearable it really is. Well, Jesus' hour had come. The cross was near. He was getting a foretaste of the wrath. He begins to experience the aloneness he's going to go through on the cross. And someone may say, well, didn't he know he was going to die? Well, of course he knew. Of course he knew he was going to die. He had been teaching his disciples he was going to die all along. So this, this wasn't new information. This wasn't something he didn't know. Rather, it was something he was beginning to experience. He was getting a foretaste of what he was going to experience on the cross, which was way beyond physical torture and death. In his sermon on this passage, Jonathan Edwards put it very vividly, as only Edwards could do. And he essentially said, The agony that Jesus experienced in the garden was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. God the Father, as it were, set the cup down before him, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. He now had a near view of that furnace into which he was about to be cast. He stood and he viewed the raging flames and the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was going to suffer so he could voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us, knowing what it was. So when he took that cup on the cross, knowing fully what it was, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. 
Jesus did two things when he submitted to the will of the Father in the garden. He loved God with, his, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. And never in the history of the world has somebody had to love God and love his neighbor under this kind of stress. And what we have here is absolutely perfect, pure, holy obedience and an absolutely perfect, pure fulfillment of the law. And this is the single greatest act of love and obedience in the history of the universe. Fully knowing what it was going to cost him because God let him see it in the garden. Jesus loved you and me and he did it at infinite cost to himself. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And in his deep agony, as he poured out his heart to, to his father, Jesus said, in perfect submission, yet not what I will, but what you will. You know, what you will is at the very heart of his prayer. I mean, but Jesus was always in total submission to the will of the Father. I mean, he was committed to do the will of God. That was his supreme desire and concern during his life as it was here as he faced the cross. And his complete submission in the garden to the Father's will was the climax of his experience as the incarnate Son in learning obedience. Father, if it is possible, take this cup. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That was the prayer of Jesus. It's the holiest prayer you and I could ever pray. It's not wrong to pray for something that is not God's will. Jesus did here. But he also submitted completely to the Father's will. You see, what is wrong is praying not what I will, is praying not what I will, but what you will, and then going ahead and doing what you will. As Elizabeth Elliot said, to pray your will be done, I must be willing, if the answer requires it, that my will be undone. Jesus resolutely submitted himself to the Father's will. And his deep distress passed from him. But the hour and the cup did not. And after praying, Jesus returned to where he had left Peter, James, and John. Look at verse 37. He came and found them sleeping. Jesus had asked them to watch. To watch and pray. Or to remain and watch. But they fell asleep. They fell asleep when they should have been praying. And Jesus wasn't surprised, but I'm sure it only added to his grief. I mean, they were sleeping at the moment of the greatest spiritual conflict in the history of the world. But I guess it's not so surprising when you consider the fact that they also fell asleep on the Mount of Transfiguration. In their defense... It was very late at night or, or extremely early in the morning. They were probably needing sleep with all of the events of the past week. 
I mean, they had had an extremely busy week, an emotional week. No doubt they were experiencing the accumulated weariness that a busy week brings. Not only that, they had just eaten a large meal late at night, you know, an entire sacrificial lamb consumed by 12 people and, and all that went with it, the unleavened bread, several cups of wine. I mean, they had reason to be sleepy. And then they had taken a long walk out of the city up the Mount of Olives. They must have felt weary from that. Luke, again, being a physician, he diagnosed the problem in his account. He, he tells us they were sleeping from sorrow. I mean, sleep is sometimes a means of escape. You know, everything was getting very depressing for the disciples. And when you get depressed, you often seek to escape it by sleeping. And so they could have been sleeping out of frustration, confusion, and depression. More, more than likely, it was a combination of all of the above. But whatever the case may have been, Jesus had asked them to watch. And so in verse 37, Jesus said to Peter, Simon. He singled Peter out for rebuke because earlier that very night, Peter had singled himself out as the one most confident in his own courage and faithfulness. And so speaking to Peter, but no doubt for the benefit of all three of them, Jesus said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Jesus' words are, are gently ironic. You know, Simon, are, are you asleep? You know, you who said earlier you would die for me, but, but you can't even keep awake for an hour to pray with me? And you'll notice the Lord used Peter's old name, Simon, apparently intending to remind Peter that he was not living up to the meaning of his new name. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Then Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. As was said earlier, to watch speaks of being spiritually alert, and it goes hand in hand with prayer. Well, not simply to watch, but to watch and pray, to continually be on spiritual alert and be praying. Why? As Jesus says, that you may not enter into or be overcome by temptation. And the temptation the disciples would be facing was to be unfaithful to Jesus and to forsake him. And in Peter's case, to deny him. But they weren't watching. And they weren't praying. They were so confident of themselves. And consequently, they were overcome by that temptation. Watch and pray, Jesus said, that you may not enter into temptation. And then he said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here Jesus gives a very gracious explanation of their failure. The Spirit indeed is willing. And that is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but to the disciples' human spirits, which desired to follow Jesus and be faithful. But they quickly gave in to, to physical fatigue because the flesh is weak. And we can relate to that, can't we? I'm sure we all can. As born-again children of God, we want to do what's right because we love the Lord. But we have our flesh to deal with. You know, our, our humanness, our, our bodily appetites, our mental desires, all the lust of our humanness, the lust of the flesh. But we also have a spirit that's been regenerated, reborn, 
and, and it longs to do what's right and it seeks to obey and do the things that please God, but it's restrained and very often defeated by our flesh. And so we really have a battle between the new us and our humanness. Because of our unredeemed flesh, we find ourselves more often than we care to admit doing the things that we do not want to do. And it's the struggle that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 7. I mean, and how we can all relate to that. That's how it is in any Christian's life. That's the battleground. The spirit is willing, prompted by God, but the flesh is weak. And for the very reason that the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, we need to watch and pray. Why? So that we don't fall into temptation. So that we're not overcome by temptation. And now we read in verses 39 and 40. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Jesus went and prayed again, and when he came back the second time, he again found the disciples sleeping, and they didn't even know what to say to him because they felt ashamed. And they had boasted about having, you know, great spiritual strength. But by their actions, they demonstrated great spiritual weakness. You see, there seems to be an inverse relationship between how self-confident we feel and how much we pray. You'll notice it says Jesus prayed saying the same words. What words? Well, back in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And it wasn't simply that he said it in a few seconds, you know, that He repeated those words, but he did so agonizingly over a prolonged period of time, perhaps hours. But he went back to pray the same prayer, and he only interrupted the prayer because he was concerned about his disciples. I mean, that's amazing to me. I mean, think about it. The experience of of sorrow and grief and distress in the garden is so severe that it's at, Jesus is at the point of death. It's so severe, it defies human comprehension. It's beyond our ability to grasp. I mean, apart from the cross, this is the greatest agony our Lord experienced. I mean, no other man has ever suffered in this way. And yet, in the midst of the most extreme agony he has ever experienced so far in his human experience, Jesus is concerned with these guys who keep falling asleep. But you see, loved ones, that's, that's the kind of Savior we have. He's a sympathetic, merciful, compassionate high priest who, in the middle of an incomprehensible, supernatural struggle, stops praying and goes out because he's concerned about the spiritual vulnerability of his disciples and friends. That's our Lord. Jesus is not a, a stoic Savior. He's not stoic. He's not a savior who glides effortlessly through his obedience to the Father, but rather he's one who was tempted in all points as we are, one who entered the darkest valleys of human experience, and even more, a savior who knows what it is by human experience to be alone, to suffer the deepest, darkest brokenness of sorrow and suffering. And what a savior Jesus is. Not only does he bear the wrath of God for our sins to set us free, he becomes a merciful high priest 
whoever sees us, not dispassionately from above, but as it were with the very lifeblood of our humanity coursing through his glorified veins. I mean, he knows what it is to be human. He's been there. He's been where we are. He's been in depths that we can never imagine. He knows our frame. I mean, this is our great high priest who cares for us. As the writer of Hebrews said, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus went back to pray a third time. He said the same thing again. Matthew tells us, so he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And again, still concerned, he stops praying, comes out of his immense struggle, and he found them, guess what, sleeping. Look at verse 41. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. It is enough. In other words, wake up. Wake up. It's time to go. The hour has come. I mean, Jesus had prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. But God did not grant that request, and now the long-expected crisis hour leading to the end had arrived. His messianic ministry had reached its climax. The Son of Man, he said in verse 41, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In the hour that God had ordained from eternity past that his holy, sinless Son should fall into the hands of sinful men, had come. And by the phrase, hands of sinners, Jesus is making reference to all those who will be responsible for his execution, Jews and and Romans alike, the sinners who take his life. And all of this can only be explained in terms of the sovereignty of God and the willing submission of the Son. He is Jesus Christ the Lord, and man can do nothing to him except what God has ordained. There was nothing more Jesus needed to do and nothing more the disciples were willing to do. And so he said to them, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Where was Jesus going? Well, he didn't get up and run away from Judas as fast as he could. He didn't go further into into the garden to evade his captors. No, far from drawing back from his enemies, He went out to meet them. As Jesus was moved toward the crowd coming to arrest them, he was moving toward the cross. And he knew God's perfect will was for him to drink from the bitter cup of sin. And he was beginning now to lift that cup to his lips. As Jonathan Edwards basically put it, the father, in a sense, gets next to Jesus and says, Here's the cup you are to drink, son. This is the furnace into which you're going to be cast if they are going to be saved. There is no other way. Either they perish or you die. Do you see how terrible the heat is? Do you see what pain and anguish you must endure? Will you still go through with it? Is your love such that you will go in 
And then Edwards said something like, did Jesus turn to his father and say, why should I, who am so great and glorious a person, why should I plunge myself into such dreadful, amazing torments for people who cannot ever repay me for it and who will not even stay awake with me in my hour of greatest need? Why should I do this for them? But he didn't. Jesus didn't say that to the Father. No, he loved us and gave himself for us at infinite cost to himself. And Jesus was not a victim. He gave his life. He laid it down of his own volition and obedience to his Father, and it was all for love. It was because he loved us. Uncomprehending as that may be, as astonishing as that is to our own hearts, he loved us. He loved us so much that he submitted himself absolutely and unreservedly in obedience to the will of his heavenly Father, and he drank that bitter cup of the wrath of Almighty God, and he drank it to its dregs for the guilt of our sins, for that which you and I deserve. He loved us and gave himself for us. And no other love, no family love, no friend love, no mother love, no spousal love, no romantic love, no professional accolades, nothing can possibly satisfy you like his love. Because all of those other kinds of love will let you down. But his love will never let you down. His love will never let us down. And we need to look at him who loved us and gave himself for us and worship and adore him. And as the the hymn we so often sing says, we should be standing in amazement in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, wondering how he could love us, a sinner, sinners condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love to me. Jesus loved us to a degree we cannot begin to comprehend. And that is why he submitted to the Father there in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. He really does love us. And he proved it by giving himself for us. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. Set free, and Lord, give to us a passion for your word that we may grow and walk in all your ways. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading, Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the word. Do you have any remaining questions or comments? Please call us at 530. 530- 
530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Growing